0: Okay, Psalm 63, if you have your Bibles towards the end, what we're doing in this very first series as we begin the year in January is I'm trying to get us ready for what I'm going to challenge you to do next week. Uh, Next week, I'm going to begin with a Bible reading challenge. I want all of us to read through the Bible together this whole year. And some of you, you've never read through the whole Bible, and you think, I can't do it, I can't do it, and I think that you can do it, but I've got to set the proper expectations for you so that you know what you're doing. And it will help you get through the parts of the Bible that maybe are difficult to get through. And what we see in Psalm chapter 63, especially the latter half, is we see the purpose of the Bible. We see what the Bible is supposed to do. And I think that's going to encourage us a lot, because if you think the Bible is supposed to do one thing and it does another thing, you're going to get disappointed, And you're going to quit. And I don't want you to quit reading the Bible. Now, last week, I didn't get to set the context for the psalm, which is actually really important. The context for the psalm is that David is in the wilderness. His son Absalom has come up against him and has taken the throne away from him. And so to save his own life, David had to go out into the wilderness. He's really at kind of the low point in his life. And he writes this psalm. And part of what makes this psalm so beautiful is that he writes it as if he is still on the throne. He writes it with this great amount of confidence in a time in his life when everybody looking at him would say, David, you have no reason for confidence. And the reason why his confidence is so high is because he has this kind of view of the scripture, because he's been meditating upon God's word in a certain type of way that leads him to be this type of person. And if I have one wish for you in 2021 or 2021, (laughs) (laughs) See how fast the years go? 2023. I I didn't even miss it by one year. I missed it by two. 2023 is that you would be like David. You'd be able to be confident in God. Because I do not know what's going to come your way. And I'm a bad pastor if I tell you that this is going to be the best year of your life. I don't know if it's going to be the best year of your life. I thought it was funny in 2020 all the pastors were doing, you know, 2020 vision series. And they were talking about their vision and what was going to happen. And God was like, watch this. Because none of us saw any of that coming. Well... I don't know if that's going to happen again to our whole world, but I know in your life there are going to be things you didn't see coming. And I want you to be the type of person who can withstand them. And that's part of the reason why the early church, like in the first 300 years, would sing this song, a large portion of them anyways, would sing this psalm every single day. Because it gives us what we need to be that type of person. So let me pray and then we'll jump in. Father God, thank you so much for your word. God, it is a gift to us. Lord, it is especially a gift to us that each of us can have our own copy. That, that is a new thing. And people died for that right. And God, I just pray that we would not take it for granted, but we would see this book for what it is. And we would use it for what it is supposed to be used for. God, because I believe that if we do, it will turn us into the type of people who can withstand anything. It will turn us into the type of people who you want us to be. It will form us into those people and it will give us confidence in the promises that you give us. God, it is in your name that I pray, and I ask for your help as I preach. Amen. Amen. I think uh, one of the worst movie experiences I ever had was a movie called The Greatest Showman. Now, The Greatest Showman by itself is not a terrible movie, and you probably liked it. A lot of you did. A lot of people liked it. It, But the reason why I didn't like it is because I didn't know what it was. I thought it was just a biography of P.T. Barnum. And when my wife asked if I wanted to go, I thought, Wow, she usually doesn't like boring movies. This is awesome. Because I love the biography movies. I like, I like the movie Lincoln, which is like four hours, and most people fall asleep three or four times during the movie. I, I love those kind of movies. And so when my wife asked me to go, I thought, well, why does she want to go to this movie? And then I, I kind of looked who was in it, and I saw, oh, that's the reason Zac Efron is in this movie. So that's why we're going to watch this movie. But I thought, that's fine. You know, I'll go watch it, and this will be great. And it was a great movie until about five minutes in, the people started singing. And then every three minutes, there would be a new song. It was a musical. I had no idea it was a musical. I, You might think, well, Blake's probably the musical type of guy. I am not the musical type of guy. Every time a new song started, I wanted to take my straw out of my cup and stab my eyes and my ears out. That's how I felt. I thought, man, this would be such a good movie if we could just cut out the songs, like put them all at the end. But see, the the problem was not that it was a musical. If I would have known it was a musical, I probably would have been able to bear it a little bit better. But I didn't know it was a musical. I had the wrong expectations. So I thought it was going to be a biography. And in reality, it was just this long high school musical. And I was like, this is why my wife likes this movie. Now, when some of us come to the Bible, we expect it to be one thing. And then we start reading and it's something else. And we give up on it. That's exactly what happens. You've got to know the genre. You've got to know what the Bible is trying to do. If you try to read a novel like you would a history textbook, it's not going to work. Or if you think a history textbook is going to be a novel, you're going to be very disappointed. You have to know the right genre. You know, you can brush your teeth with a hammer, but it's not the most effective way to use a hammer. There's a lot of things you can do with the Bible. But not all of them are the most effective. And so I want to look just at two because I think that's what this psalm looks at. And by the way, I'm going to spend like the majority of the sermon on one verse, verse six. So if like you're looking at your watch in 30 minutes and you're like, he's still on the first verse, we're going to be here forever. I promise that's not what's going to happen. Verse six sets up the rest of the text. But what we see is two things. We often want the Bible to inform us, but the Bible forms us. We want a checklist and the Bible says, no, I'm not going to give you a checklist. I'm just going to make you into the type of person who can make the right decisions. Number two is we want the Bible to solve our problems when it is really designed to give us promises Two very big things for you to understand as you seek to read the Bible this year. Number one, we want the Bible to inform us when it is designed to form us. Let's look at verse six together. When I think of you, this is David speaking and he's thinking of God as I lay on my bed, I meditate on you during the night watches, which is really interesting. David, in this time of a great struggle, wondering if his own son is going to come and kill him. The reason why he's up at night is so that he can watch his own back. And what is he doing? He's lying on his bed and he's meditating upon God. Now, when we think of meditation in kind of our modern sense, we think of emptying out our minds and setting crisscross applesauce and going hum for as long as we can. That's not what the Bible means at all when it says meditation. The, the Bible's term of meditation is not to empty your mind, but it is to fill your mind. You're trying to get as many thoughts as possible. The, the thing you're trying to meditate upon, though, is very important, and that is God. When I'm meditating on God, I'm trying to get as many thoughts of who God is into my mind for as long as I possibly can. And when we think about meditating upon God, there's a very specific way that David tells us to do this. It's not just, well, I think about God the way I think about God. Then you're just thinking of a God that you made up in your own mind. And that's where people get in a lot of trouble. No, when David talks about meditating upon God, he's talking about meditating upon the word of God. How do we know who God is? Well, he has revealed himself to us in his word. This is exactly what David says in Psalm chapter one, uh, verse two. He's speaking of what a righteous person does. And he says this. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction or the Lord's law, and he meditates on it day and night. Now, this seems strange to a lot of us in his time of great need. Why is he meditating upon the law of God? I'm not trying to meditate upon the law of God. If I'm David, I'm trying to meditate upon how do I get my son out of Jerusalem and how do I get my throne back? I'm trying to plot and plan about what I ought to do. I need wisdom, God. Tell me what to do right now. And David says, no, that's not what I do. I meditate upon the law of God. And the reason is, is because David has a very different view of what the Bible is supposed to do. We come to the Bible and we want it to inform us. This is why you get frustrated. You've got a problem in your marriage. You've got a problem in your finances. You've got some sort of problem. And you come to this Bible very frantically. And you're trying to find answers to a very specific question that you have. That's not the way that the Bible works, though. See, what you really want is not the Bible. You want a magic eight ball. You want to be able to shake this thing up and then tell you yes or no, or maybe. That's what you want. And the Bible says, that's not what I do. I'm here to form you into the type of person who you ought to be is a kind of a, and I'm sure you guys have all done this. I know that I have. You know, you're in those times where you're like, man, I don't know what else to do. And I need some wisdom from the Bible. And so you do the, the kind of magic spell trick on the Bible where you say, God, please speak to me. And you just kind of randomly open it and put your finger down. And you hope that God tells you something. Raise your hand. Be honest if you've ever done that. Some of you guys are liars. That's fine. I have, you know, in these, these moments of, oh, my gosh, my life's falling apart. What do I do? Let me just open the Bible and point on it. Well, that's really a terrible way to read the Bible. That is very bad. There's an old uh, story about a guy who uh, was feeling really depressed and really low. And so he did this trick. He opened the Bible and he said, God, say something to me. And he put his finger down. And when he read it, it said, Judas went and hung himself. <laughs> and he said, sure, that's not what God's saying to me. So he closed it and he opened it again. And when he put his finger down it said, whatever thou doest, doest quickly. <laughs> It's just not an effective way to read the Bible. That's the eight ball, the the magic eight ball method of reading the Bible. But that's not what the Bible is supposed to do. The Bible is supposed to form us into the type of people that we are supposed to be. See, our generation of Christians is obsessed with understanding God's will. If you go to any Christian bookstore, you'll find tons of books on discerning God's will in your life. Uh, you know, I've preached sermons on it and the Bible certainly talks about discerning God's will on the things that we don't know about. Should I take this job or not take this job? Should I marry this person or not marry this person? Those kind of questions. But really that's a new thing. Like we're talking the last 30, 40 years of Christianity. Before that, Christians were not as concerned about finding out what God had not already revealed to them. They were more discer- discer- uh, concerned with trying to figure out how to live out what God had already told them to do. They said, we don't need more of God's revealed will. We need to start living out what God's will already says for us. Uh, there's a verse in the Bible actually for this. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-8. Verse 3, it says, for this is God's will. Everybody's like, oh, what's God's will for my life? 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says this, this is God's will. Your sanctification. You becoming more like Christ. And it says that you keep away from sexual immorality. That each of you knows how to control his own body. In holiness and honor. Not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. This means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner. Because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses. As we also previously told and warned you. For God has not called us to impurity but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this idea does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. What's God's will for you? Keep your pants on and become more like Jesus. That's what Paul says there. And, and we're thinking, well, that's not what I want. That doesn't excite me. You know, I, I, I want to know if I should take this job or not. And Paul's like, that, OK. But God's will is, is that you become more like Christ Jesus, that you would obey his law. And we're thinking, Why? Why would Paul ask us to do this? And here's why this doesn't excite us, because it's about who you are becoming. You don't want to know who you're supposed to become. What do you want? You want answers to your questions. You want information and you want it now. You're in a crisis and you need an answer. And what the Bible is designed to do is over a long period of time before you get to the crisis is to help you become the type of a person who doesn't even need to pray during those crises because you're not in the crisis. Uh, The law of God, the scripture of God really is what it's doing is it's like a child who's learning how to draw. You know, when you're learning how to write, apparently they didn't teach me very well because I can't, my my writing is ineligible. You know, you you can't even read it. But uh, what you do is you put like a, you know, capital A with the dots on it and the kid's supposed to trace it until they learn how to write. Well, the law is us tracing it. You know, we say we're supposed to love one another. What does loving one another look like? Well, you can make it up on your own or you can read God's revealed will and become the type of person who is supposed to love in the way that God has called us to love one another. That's what the scriptures are supposed to do. It's not supposed to get you out of a pickle. It's supposed to keep you away from pickly situations. I don't know if that's a word or not, but I just used it Uh, and it made me laugh. So that's all that matters. Uh, It's like, you know, when somebody comes to me and they say, Blake, I need prayer for a financial situation or something and my finances has fallen apart. What I really want to say is, okay, well, the Bible will tell you what to do. You read the book of Proverbs, it'll tell you how to manage your money. You know, have you listened to God's law about the tithe? Are you obeying him with the tithe? Are you giving the first 10% to the work of God? And people will say, well, what in the world does that have to do with my financial crisis? (laughs) I said, I need more money, not less money. And What you don't understand when you say that is the tithe is supposed to train you. It's forming you into the type of person. If you're going to honor God with your money, guess what it's going to do? It's going to force you to change the way you view your money. You're going to have to budget. You're going to have to spend less than what you make, which is kind of like a crazy idea for Americans, that we actually don't spend money unless we have the money to spend. You see, it's forming you into the type of person who doesn't have a financial crisis. Or if somebody comes to me and they're stressed out and they're overworked, And and what I really want to say is, have you read God's law? Do you keep the Sabbath? Do you keep a day holy? And you say, Blake, I don't need less days. I need more days in a week. And I would say, no, what you need to do is learn how to live on what God has given you. The Sabbath is a trainer. It forms us into the type of person who God wants us to be. And it forms us into this type of person who has peace. You know, Jesus literally changed the world. And you know what he did? He took naps. Naps are biblical. Some of you, you don't take naps. Naps. And you're not changing the world. I'm just saying there's a direct correlation there. (laughs) And I'm also really excited about my nap later this afternoon. It's important to uh, think of it like this. Uh, If you are a parent, you know exactly what the law is supposed to do. As a parent, you do not want to solve every problem for your child. Like If if there's something that changes, and there's something that they need help with in life, your ultimate goal is that they would learn how to think for themselves. Uh, Right now, my daughter... uh, doesn't get to determine what she eats. She only eats one thing, and that's milk. Uh, but when she gets a little bit older, she'll get a little bit more freedom and a little bit more freedom. But at first, she doesn't get any freedom at all because she's going to want Twinkies for dinner. And I'm going to have to say, Twinkies are not a dinner item. But if I always tell her exactly what to eat, then what happens? Well, she either A, goes out on her own and doesn't know how to eat for nutrition, or she lives with me till she's 37. Neither seemed like a good idea to me. <laughs> what I want her to become is the type of person who knows how to eat. I want her to know how to do her own laundry so she doesn't have to come home and get her laundry done. I want her to know how to brush her teeth and, and the reason for brushing her teeth so that I don't have to be there to tell her to brush her teeth for the rest of her life. I want her to become a type of person. And the way that I do that is by not solving every problem for her, but by telling her how to think, by teaching her how to be the type of person to live a life. That's exactly what God is trying to do for you. He's not interested in you just getting your problems solved. He's trying to form you into a certain type of person. You can Think of it this way. We are all actually seeds. Uh, what we are right now, whether you're 8 years old or 80 years old, is actually just preparation for what you will become. If you are a Christian here today, you've been given the gift of eternal life. Do you know how little and young you are? You are like a little tadpole. And you're like, oh, well, I'm 97 years old. You're a tadpole. 97 years old is nothing compared to the thousands and thousands and thousands of years that we will have with Jesus. And do you know what we are going to do in the new world? We are going to steward this plant. Now, I don't fully know what it looks like yet because it's not fully revealed to us in the Scripture. But what I know is we won't be floating around like angels playing harps for all eternity. Praise Jesus. Now, when we die right now, there is a time in which we're kind of not in a bodily state. We're with Jesus. Uh, in in a certain kind of weird way that's not fully explained in the scriptures. But what I do know is when Jesus comes back, all of the dead will be risen. That will include you and I. We will be dead. Our bones will come back together, and we will have a new resurrection body in a new resurrected world. And the Bible says that we will have certain amounts of dominion. We will have certain amounts of responsibilities in this new world. Some of us will rule over angels, which is crazy. I look at some of you, and I'm like, there's no way that person's ruling over angels. But... And you look at me and you're like, there's no way God's going to let him rule over anything. But but the truth is, we will. We will have certain responsibilities. And so what is God doing right now? He's forming us for that. that. That somehow, some way, this short little life we live on this side of earth is like a seed that goes into the ground. And God wants that seed to be as good as it can possibly be. Because when that seed sprouts in the resurrection, he wants one that will bear much fruit. And so if we have this kind of idea when it comes to life, it will help us suffer better because we'll begin to realize that it's not just about this life, but it's about all of eternity. And that's the kind of mindset you have to have when you come to the scripture. So here's how we read for formation. Number one is you've got to slow down. Uh, Notice what David said. He said, I meditate. I meditate. That word meditate in Hebrew is actually a word picture of a cow chewing the cud, which is an illustration you'll never forget. That's how you're supposed to read the Bible. You take it in, chew it up, and you... Throw it up and you bring it back up. You know, a cow has seven stomachs. They, they chew it and they throw it back up seven different times before they actually swallow it. The Bible says that's how you are to read scripture, that you're supposed to take this Psalm and you're not supposed to get it all out of it right at the beginning. But you say, well, why? Why would God put that there? You begin to ask questions. You begin to think on it over and over and over and over and over again. Or you can think of it like this. And a more kind of modern illustration would be it's the difference in the crock pot and the microwave. Uh, this new year's Eve, I discovered that you can microwave cinnamon rolls, uh, which I think is, has got to be from Satan that honestly, that scared me when I knew you could do that, that I could get a cinnamon roll that fast. And with that little of effort, I'm like, Oh man, I'm not even going to do this. This is going to lead to obesity. Uh, but that's the generation we live in. Everything is microwaved. Everything is quick. The Bible is more of a crock pot kind of book. It's a book where you got to simmer on it. You got to think on it all day long. It's not TikTok where we get the answer in seven seconds. No, this is a long form book we have to think about. We have to meditate upon it. And so when you are reading scripture this year, what I want you to do is take a section of your scripture and meditate upon it. One of the most beautiful ways to do this is to memorize big chunks of scripture. You know, don't just memorize one verse, John 3, 16. Memorize the whole chapter of John chapter 3. You say, I couldn't do that. Yes, you could. But it'll take a long time. There's an app called uh, Bible Memory. You can search it in the app store. You can find it. It's an app that I use. And uh, this past year, i memorized the whole Ephesians chapter 1. And now I'm on chapter 2. I'd like to memorize the whole book. And the reason why I'm excited about it is because it's probably had more of a transformative effect on me than any other section of scripture I've ever read. You know why? Because I've had to constantly go back to it. And I had to worry about each and every single word. And so there's things in there that I had never thought about before. Like, for instance, what does it mean to be seated in the heavenly realms that's what Ephesians says. And when I just read it throughout uh, quickly, I just go right over that. But when I'm memorizing it, I've got to think about it. Seated in the heavenly realm. Seated, what does that mean? And God teaches you in those moments. So that's what we've got to do. Number one is we want the Bible to inform us, but the Bible is designed to form us. Number two will be much shorter than number one, if you're worried. Number two is we want the Bible to solve our problems, but when it, what it is really designed for is to give us promises. I want my problem solved, David, out in the wilderness, I want this to go away, help me, what do I do? And God says, I'm not going to give you the absolute solution to your problem, but what I am going to do is give you promises that you can build your life on, that you can be confident in. Verse 6, look at what it says again. When I think of you as I lie on my bed, I meditate on you during the night watches. That night watch word is a word that you might roll over really quickly, but if you're meditating on the scripture, you begin to think. He's meditating on the scripture of God and he's doing it at night. He's in the desert. What happens at night in the desert when you look up at the sky? You get a clear picture because there's nothing. It's just like northwest Oklahoma. It's like the one thing that we have going for us here. I mean, our weather is awful, it's bipolar. The wind makes me really want to move to Florida every time it starts howling. It's cold. I mean, we we have like six days of good weather. It's either too hot or too cold. There's no ocean nearby. There's like no geographical benefits to living here, except for one thing. When everybody comes to Northwest Oklahoma, the one thing they'll talk about that is beautiful here is what? It's the sky. It's the sunsets and it's the sunrises. It's gorgeous. You know why? (laughs) Because we have nothing. It's desolate. (laughs) You get a clear picture. That's David in the desert. He gets a clear picture. So you know what he sees? He sees all these stars. And because he's been meditating and reading God's word, he will remember the promise that was made to Abraham. See, God took Abraham and he, he took him outside of his tent. And he said, Abraham, look up at the stars. What I want you to know is there's going to be a whole nation that comes from you. And you count all the stars. You try to count them. You're not going to be able to. And what I'm telling you is your descendants will be more numerous than those stars. And my promise to you is that from those descendants... That the world will be blessed. And then David would remember the story of Abraham. And how God had kept that promise to him. When it looked like that promise wasn't going to be kept. And David would remember how God had chosen him out of the line of Abraham. That God narrowed it down. He said, I'm not just going to bless the whole world from the line of Abraham. I'm going to do it from the line of David. And he would remember that God had kept his promises before. And he would remember the promise that was made to him. And he would know there's no way that Absalom is going to win. You know why? Because God's promise is much stronger than anything my circumstances might look like. See, to people looking at David, they would say, David, do you know how foolish you look? I mean, your son's trying to kill you. You've lost the throne. You're near the end of your life. There's no way this is going to work out. And David would say, I'm confident. And the reason why I'm confident is because of the promises of God. The same is true for those of us who are Christ followers. In fact, it's more so true because all of the stories of the Old Testament, all of the promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who is the the answer to the very first promise in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3. Eve is given a promise from God. God says, from your seed I will rise one up who will crush the head of the serpent. Guess where Jesus is now? Ephesians chapter 1 at the end of it tells me that Jesus is seated on the thrones of heaven and he has subjected everything under his feet. God has subjected everything under his feet. In other words, the serpent is right under the heel of Jesus. All of the enemies are under the heel of Jesus. And you say, Blake, how do you know? Because God has already kept his promise through Christ. I look at the cross. I look at Jesus who came and he lived a life I could not live. He died the death I deserve to die. And in his death, it looked like the movement was over. It looked like the promises of God had failed. But they did not fail because three days later he rose again. And he ascended to the right hand of the throne. And so I don't care what my circumstances look like. I know that God is going to work everything out for my good and for his glory. How do you know, Blake? Because the promises of God will not be broken. And this is why reading the scripture in a whole year is so important. This is why. in the first one I told you, you've got to slow down. This is why you've got to speed up. That's why you've got to read through the stories. You've got to know the story of Noah. You've got to know the story of Abraham. You've got to know the story of David. And not so you can get some morals. That's what we often do. We come to the stories and we try to learn, well, how, do I, how can I be like David? You don't want to be like David. The guy had like hundreds of wives and concubines and his son tried to kill him. Or how do I be like Noah? You don't want to be like Noah. I mean, maybe parts of Noah you want to be like, but I don't know if you've read the end of the story, but he ends up passed out in the tent, but naked. You, you don't ever want to end up in a tent, but naked. There's Don't be. Some of you guys are like, what? That's in the Bible. I didn't make that up. We don't tell them that in the sent kids. Uh, (laughs) That is a part of the story. Why am I reading these stories? I'm reading these stories to know about God, that God was still faithful to Noah, even though he was a knucklehead. God was still faithful to Abraham and David, even though they were knuckleheads. Hey, maybe God will still be faithful to me, even though I am a knucklehead. And you'll be reading the Bible, and you'll, some of these stories will really pop out at you. Others of them, they won't. And what I always tell people is keep reading. Because you don't want to just read the Bible once. You want to read it a hundred times. You want to read it throughout the rest of your life. And you won't pick up on things this year. But next year, you'll be reading, and you'll be reading the story of Noah, and you'll go, oh, wait a minute. I remember this other story of Jesus and how this all connects. And God will build your faith through it. Amen. And this is why I want you guys to have it. Verses 7 through uh, 11, the end of the chapter, gives us the result. This is the kind of person we will become if we do these things. It says, because you are my helper, I will rejoice in the shadow of your wings. What a beautiful picture David gives us. And he gives us this several times in the Psalms. But, but it looks like the world is caving in on him. And he says, no, I'm, I'm under the shadow of the wings of my heavenly father. And I hope you guys have that kind of confidence when cancer comes. I hope you guys have that kind of confidence when you lose your job. hope you have that kind of confidence when your marriage seems like it's about to fall apart. Because if all you have to look at is your circumstances, it's not going to be good. But if you can know that I'm under the wings of my heavenly Father, it will give you confidence and a courage that is unknown to this world. Verse 8 says, I will follow close to you. Your right hand holds on to me. Verse 9, But those who intend to destroy my life will go into the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the power of the sword, they will become a meal for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by him will boast. For the mouths of liars will be shut. That's the kind of person you want to be. When you look at everything, you say, we've already won. Christians, we've already won. Did you know this world is ours? We own this world. And you say, Blake, we don't own this world. We barely own this building. No, no, no. We we own this world. Jesus is already ruling and reigning over. Christians have got to get better at this. Like I said, Ephesians 1 tells me where Jesus is. He is the ruler of the world. That's where he is. There was a politician running for governor in Oklahoma, and uh, I, I don't know, I don't care what you believe about him, but he said something really stupid. He prayed a prayer and he said, God, we pray that we're able to claim every inch of Oklahoma for you. And I about threw my remote at the TV. You know, the most frustrating arguments are when I argue with people on TV because they never hear me. But I mean, I was yelling at him because every inch of Oklahoma is already Jesus's. Amen. He already owns it, he owns every square inch of the ocean, it's all his. And we say, Blake, it doesn't look like it. And we say, I know. But what we also know is the promises of God. We know what is true. We know that all of the enemies of Christ Jesus are under his heel. And when the time is right, through his church, each of those enemies will be crushed. The last of which, 1 Corinthians 15 tells me, is death itself. I do not go by what I see. I go by what God says. And that faith that I have is not a blind faith. It's a faith built upon facts. It's a faith built upon past promises of God being fulfilled. Amen. When we slow down and meditate, we can be assured that Jesus is on his throne. And when we speed up, we'll see the promises of God fulfilled. Uh, band, if you guys want to go ahead and come up. I want to end with this quote from uh, G.K. Chesterton. He was an old Catholic guy in the 19th century. Uh, He has a lot of amazing quotes. He's a really funny guy. Uh, This quote, though, is is really good. He's talking uh, at a newspaper uh, because somebody had said that London had no longer had faith, that Christianity had died in the United Kingdom. And uh, G.K. Chesterton said, well, it's died several different times. But he had this amazing quote of faith. And I want you to know that if you read the Bible, if you meditate on the Bible, you can kind of have this faith. G.K. Chesterton says this. It says, Christendom has had a series of revolutions. And in each one of them, Christianity has died. In other words, there was a time in which Christianity was following the movement of Jesus. And when Jesus died, the movement died. There was a time in which Christianity was powerful in Rome. And when Rome died, everybody thought, well, the movement of Jesus will die. There was a time in which the, the movement of Christianity was at its height. And then the great enlightenment came. And people like Nietzsche said, God is dead. And people said, Christianity will die. But here's what... G.K. Chesterton said, Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. Friends, that is what we hold on to. Every time the world says it's over, for you and your life or for Christianity as a whole, what we can say is, it's looked over several different times, but we trust in the promises of God. And we know that our God can do the impossible because He died and He rose again three days later. Let me pray for you. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank you so much for Psalm 63. I wish I had several sermons to preach on this. I try to cram it all into one. God, I pray that my my listeners got something from this today. I pray that they would be encouraged and strengthened in reading the Bible. They wouldn't come to it looking for quick information. But God, they would come to it knowing that it is to form us. That they wouldn't go to it expecting to have a way out of their problems. But God, they would know they could stand on your promises. Jesus, I pray that you would work in the hearts of these people. Friends, if you would, with your eyes closed and head bowed, take about 20 seconds and say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message?